The Bob Murphy Show, episode 15. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Welcome everybody to yet another interview on The Bob Murphy Show. Today we're joined by David Gernowski, and this was a fascinating interview, and I just regret that I had a, a seminar I needed to go to, and so that's why I had to cut this one short. As you can tell, if you listen, we could have gone for much longer. Uh, but I do want to stress, I mean, for one thing, if you're a Christian, you're going to just really, I think, find this interview fascinating. But I want to stress that even if you're not, go ahead and listen to it. We get into a lot of stuff, and I do try to turn it back to keep you folks in the conversation, as it were, uh, David's got a lot of insight into the nature of the modern state, and he has some specific applications for his understanding and how that can affect what you, if you're a libertarian evangelist, let's say, should be doing in terms of getting the public to see the danger with supporting the state and to see what an insidious institution it is in our lives. David is the host of A Neighbor's Choice. That's his uh, radio show, and the website for that is aneighborschoice.com. For the Orlando area listeners, David says that A Neighbor's Choice Radio is on the 50,000-watt front porch of WFLA 93.1 FM and 540 AM, or if you want to go online, you can get to it at wflaorlando.iheart.com. Of course, folks, I'll have all these links at the show notes page. Again, this is going to be bobmurphyshow.com slash 15. David is going to be speaking with me and Jeff Dice at the Mises Institute event in Orlando that's occurring on February 16th, 2019. As of this moment, I still have, for special Bob Murphy Show listeners, a few free tickets to that event. So if you're interested, feel free to contact me. Go to BobMurphyShow.com. There's the contact button there. And it'll, obviously, I'll just do it on a first-come, first-served basis for those who contact me while I still have some free tickets if you're interested. One of David's passions is what's called mimetic theory. And we get into that. I mean, the whole interview is basically about that concept. And you'll just, I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> you just listen. But near the end, I'll have him explicitly define mimetic theory and then give suggestions for other readings and so forth. And again, he's given me stuff that I put in the show notes page if you want to see more on this fascinating topic. So without further ado, here is my interview with David Gernowski. Hope you enjoy it. Well, David, it's great to have you on the Bob Murphy Show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So David, let me uh, give you a chance to sort of explain to the listeners, because I think for many of them, you might be a relatively new uh, person coming onto their radar. And again, I, I mentioned this in the formal introduction here, but you and I are both going to be speaking at the Mises Institute event in Orlando on February 16th. This is 2019 where we're recording this. 
And so maybe just as a way of quickly bringing my, most of my listeners who are fans of the Mises Institute up to speed, how did you, you know, learn about the Mises Institute? Are you a fan of Austrian economics? Can you just give us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I've, I first accepted capitalism into my heart. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> I, uh, it was I, actually the first, you know, I was in high school when I read uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. My history teacher uh, at the time, it's a public school. He said, here, look, it's like one of them things where they give you the the, the good stuff that they have, you know, the, the Hennessy. Here, mm-hmm. I've got everybody else on the workbook that the school gives, but for you, my friend, I got you this one right here. And he pulled out the American, the politically incorrect guide to American history. He said, "Here, take this. This is the good stuff." You know? And so, of course, I mean, I'm sure 99 percent of the listeners know it, but that's Tom Woods's book right. that kicked off the whole politically incorrect guide series. Um, so, it, was it because the teacher was it sort of like the, the teacher was kind of on your side and privately agreed with Tom Woods's viewpoint, but obviously couldn't really talk about that much in the class, but then got a right. sense that, oh, this kid's special. I mean, here, check Yeah, this out. I can tell you're conservative or whatever. I mean, I tell people when I was a child, I spake as Rush Limbaugh, but when I became an adult, you know, I kind of moved into more nuanced, deeper analysis. But uh, but yeah, that was one of those turning point books and, and, and high school. And then I remember another teacher of mine, you know, he would always, uh, he was a economics teacher and he would always get up there and he didn't really want to do a lot of work, but he'd say... Okay, kids, uh, get out your textbook and start uh, writing out the definitions of the next chapter here. And uh, f- uh, I want to let you guys know there's a lot more going on in the world than you realize. Things like the Federal Reserve and the Bilderberg. you got to study the Bilderberg and the Trilateral Commission. Did you say that was like, in high school? Yeah, that was in high school. I was like, I had a couple teachers like that that were like really kind of, you know, into some really <laughs> deep stuff. And so I'd go up to them. Well, everybody's working in their, you know, busy work. And I say, I go up to his desk and be like, what's the Bilderberg? Tell me what that Bilderberg meeting's about. You know, and he he's a little more conspiratorial than I, you know, ended up being. But it was little things like that that started opening my mind to uh, not accepting the, you know, standard uh, framework of opinion. And uh, so, yeah. I, well, I'm well, can a, I, I mean, this fascinates me. Was the person coming, I mean, because there are, a lot of people all over the conventional political spectrum who don't like the Bilderberg group. In other words, there's Rothbardians who don't like them, but there's also probably Marxists, I'm guessing, you know, might think that, oh, yeah, this is the, the central bankers in league to keep the working man down or something. So where was this teacher coming from to be suspicious of the Bilderberg? Group? Right. Well, this is the South. And this guy was like a uh, a Tennessee preacher, you know, so oh, okay. he, that's his background. He's a Pentecostal preacher. So, you know, he's kind of on more of the conservative and uh I don't know what, you know, I don't know if he was into John Birch or something. Maybe that was an influence. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it was definitely an interesting thing because he, he, I remember it was just kind of always ironic because, you know, looking back, you know, he'd say he teased the class. He said, now the real thing's going on. It's all about the Bilderbergs. You need to go study the Bilderbergs. And you'd see like a cheerleader or somebody raise their hand and say, tell me more. What's about the Bilderbergs? <laughs> tell me about the trilateral. He said, no, 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 no. You can't handle it. And he'd just tease it and then walk away. <laughs> And I would always go up and persist and say, "What is this? What, what are you talking about? What's what's really behind economics?" You know, but uh, yeah, that was uh, an interesting, you know, growing experience for understanding. But yeah, I, I'm a believer, and I like the Austrian school, uh, and so I, I I've kind of my work. I've been writing political commentary uh, internationally since like 2007, and I, I wrote. 
starting when I was like 17, 18, somewhere around there, I started writing political commentary first at like World Net Daily and then on to Daily Caller and Town Hall and American Conservative, um, different publications, Fee, Lou Rockwell, a lot of different uh, independent news outlets like that. And so I've kind of, as I've developed my work, I've kind of steered it more into a cultural and anthropological focus because uh, I think that's an area that's much needed uh, to be developed in the, in, the, in the circles that I'm walking in, you know. Yes, and we definitely want to hit on that. But let me, I think some of our listeners, especially younger people, they might, you know, look at that and say, wow, that's, yeah, I, I wish, you know, I could, instead of just making Facebook posts or zinging people on Twitter, that would be great if I could write essays that get run on LRC or Town Hall, these, you know, these other big websites that, you know, cater to a particular demographic. And so how did you, how, how did they, you know, can you just tell them, and maybe things are different at this point, but at, at, when you were coming up, how did that, how did that happen? How did you end up being featured in all these places? Well, you know, you just have to go find the email where it says like submissions and, it, and it'll say like opinion at whatever. And then, or sometimes it's columns at whatever the website is, or you look for their submissions page. And then, you know, if they have a guide, sometimes they'll have a guideline, like how long do you need to make the article and everything. So just read that and then just write a really good piece. If you feel like you've got a good, unique angle on something and you can articulate a message in a concise and kind of uh, pithy way in about 700 words or a thousand words, depending on where you go, then get your pieces and get going. Because, I mean, like I said, I did that at 17 starting and, and they love that. And you know, that's another thing you need to think about if you're young and starting out is, your youth is a marketing uh, um, plus, so use it because people are willing to take a chance with you because it's a novelty whenever a young person can articulate a very cogent, you know, interesting angle mm. about politics and culture so or, or economics or whatever it is you're interested in. So I encourage people who are in high school or whatever, even middle school, to, uh, you know, get out there. Because one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people will say, well, how did you get this and how did you know this person and how did you get connected with this group? And you just got to show up, got to show up. And if you believe in something and you really believe it, you're not just saying it because you think it's an expedient way to get attention or something. I mean, if you really believe in something, people will know it and they'll feel it by the way you, you know, you type your emails or the way you talk to them in person or on the phone. And uh, you just got to show up and, 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 you know, speak the message because we certainly need more and more messengers that are, are interested in nonviolence and liberty and people who respect personhood. And that's something that we are really, we need thousands of more uh, young people get, getting into the fray, you know? Well, exactly. So, and, that, and, that, that, and that's one of the things I tried to focus on. I went after World Net Daily because, you know, at the time, and they, they're a little different, you know, but they had a very heavy neo, uh, a heavy war focus at the time. And I said, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to go and start writing at a site that's more, you know, preaching to the choir. I want to go after people who are, you know, like, uh, you know, the people who need the message of liberty. So I want to, I want to talk to the, you know, Christians. I want to talk to the people who I feel are the most lost politically. And so not the most, but one of the, you know, one of the groups that are not being served by the message of liberty and, and so forth on a, on a direct level. So, and that's why, you know, I go to Daily Caller and these other sites and they've been very good to me. They've, I've always been impressed by how they prominently feature my articles. And here I am talking about some radical liberty stuff very anti-war, very anti, you know, drug war and all these other things. And uh, they've been very receptive. So, Okay. So that's interesting. So it's not, as some people might have totally been fine with you doing and thought, okay, he's being strategic. It's not that on those sites, 
you, you know, just talk about cutting marginal income tax rates or, you know, hey, we need to reduce oh, no. government regulation of business. Oh, no. You still talk about, you know, your oh, yeah. core issues even there. Yeah, I talk okay. about how the state is a religious cult that is founded on ritual human sacrifice on the front page of Daily Caller's opinion page. Yes, and they run it. And it's great because, hey, it's true and it's unique. And uh, I make a case for why that's very clearly the case. <laughs> it uh, it's works out for everyone so far. So I'm sure... You know. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little bit heavier than a uh, capital gains discussion. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like we, reading a, it, it's like reading the screenplay for Apocalypto. You know. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we, I mean, since you're using such provocative language, let's go ahead and jump into it. So your 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 show is called A Neighbor's Choice, and I'm here at the website. It's aneighborschoice.com. And of course, we'll link to this, everybody. Uh, this is episode 15. So bobmurphyshow.com slash 15 is where you'll get all the links of the various things Dave and I will bring up here. And so here, let me just read the quick little blurb you've got at the top of the page. It says, hosted by writer and speaker David Gornoski, a neighbor's choice radio show examines the role of violence and religion in society from victims of state violence against nonviolent behaviors to public figures and contrarian voices. The conversations that unfold create an illuminating and sometimes strange journey for listeners. So first off, what is a neighbor's choice radio? Like a neighbor's choice. What, why did you pick that title? What does that mean? Well, it's just kind of one of those things that has, you know, you can put whatever meaning you want into it. Um, on a, there's a lot of layers to it, but it just simply means that uh, my show, I'm your neighbor, and this is my choice to do this program. So when you listen to the radio show, you've chosen to join what I've chosen to do. And uh, together, I, I call it kind of like an apocalyptic Mr. Rogers neighborhood for adults. So when you come on my show, you're going to get a journey into uh, what it means to be human in an anthropological perspective with the state as the foreground, kind of as an adversary, you know, the state and its corny, its crony corporate, uh, allies. How do, how do we deal with living in this society given how much violence is embedded into the system? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? So yeah, there's, a, there's a Christian layer to that too, mm -hmm. uh, from the idea that the ultimate choice that is presented to us from the Christian tradition is to love your neighbor as yourself. So that is the choice that we all must make. And we all must decide whether we're going to desire mercy or sacrifice in the way we, um, you know, deal with our neighbors, even in the things that they do that we really uh, dislike. Okay, fantastic. So this last phrase you just said there, you know, and I've seen this come up a few times, like in the blurbs of your episodes and so on. This, you know, do, do you desire mercy or sacrifice? So can you just give the, you know, the, the, the context of that? And then, you know, how are you applying that? Why, why do you find that phrase, you know, or that, that choice so uh, relevant? Well, you know, Jesus, when he was talking, you know, to people, they were asking him, what's the whole point of what you're doing? And he says, go and learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, and so that is the question kind of underpinning how we view politics and economics and culture. All of those are all downstream from that kind of question, which is, uh, do you desire using violence to get your way over your neighbors or your enemies or whatever it is? Or do you desire, you know, showing mercy or self-restraint, self-sacrifice of your fear of your neighbor is that the choice you want to make or do you want to choose violence? And that's the path we all have to kind of consider when we look at things like politics and society. Uh, but all of these things ultimately stem, I think, from culture. So culture is 
the shared stories that we all kind of inherit and transmit together about what the meaning of life is, why are we here, who are we as a people, where are we going, uh, you know, what are the standards of behavior that we should all imitate and transmit as role models. All of that is what affects what our politics looks like. And so it's some, for my program, it's not so much about just, hey, how do we get rid of government immediately? It's about how do we transform the culture so that government is not even – it's like a null thing at that point. You don't even it, – it, it withers away because the fertile ground that it used to uh, you know thrive in, which is a violence-obsessed culture, it has repented of its addiction to violence. And therefore, there's no longer a need for an apparatus like the state to even have a place or a foothold in society. So I don't really care about whether government, what government size looks like in a direct sense. More importantly, we have to change people's appetite for how much violence they're willing to accept. And that's the real focus for me is uh, I don't really care. What, you know, at, at some point you could even say the government could exist so long as they don't use violence to enforce anything they want. You know, as if they can find a way to voluntarily have their um, enterprises funded without putting a gun to people's faces and putting them in a cage if they disagree with the way they're funding or what they're spending money on. If they could find a way to exist like that, that's fine with me. So, you know what I mean? That's the way I focus on is is trying to engage the culture about our appetite for violence and why do we have such an addiction to it. Well, this, let me let me stop you here. So this is all fascinating stuff and we definitely want to unpack this as uh, time allows here. But what in, is intriguing to me, and I just, I never thought of it this way, is that I had always, and I don't know if somebody taught it to me this way or just the way I interpreted it. So Jesus there, he's referring to, it's Hosea, right? You know, he's paraphrasing the, you know, Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament of the Lord saying, I desire mercy or love, not sacrifice. And so I always just thought God was saying, look at, you know, I don't need your burnt offerings. You know, I I have everything I need. It's not that you're giving me material wealth, the point of all this stuff was to, you know, change your hearts. It's more important to me that, you know, you guys in your hearts love me and love your neighbor rather than that you go through the motions of, you know, handing over some of your animals or crops to me. But you're the, so that's what, to me, that's what I was picturing of the, he doesn't want your sacrifices. I mean, like he doesn't want your donations or your tithes, whereas you're making it like, no, like actual sacrifice. I mean, that involves the ritualistic slaughter of an, of an animal. Right, and so you're you're bringing in the violence element, which I had never, you know, associated with that passage. So that's that's intriguing to me. Right, yeah, I mean, and that's the the Bible is an anthology of books that are weaning humanity off of its prior addiction to ritual human sacrifice. So the Bible has this. When you come into the early stories of the Bible, you have this move away from human sacrifice, which is happening all around the ancient Israelites, and sometimes the Israelites fall into it themselves when they're imitating their neighbors' cultures, uh, which were ubiquitous around the world. If we go all around the world, and this is just a quick summation, you'll see that there is evidence of ritual human sacrifice at the earliest stages of the presence of human uh, societies, wherever you go. And so even we see this this familiar pattern, a particular form of sacrifice is what we would call the foundation sacrifice, which you find in chi- ancient China, uh, ancient what is now Germany. You know, you go to this um, Mesopotamia area, all over, wherever you go, Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho, you'll find 
evidence of in ancient Mexico, ancient uh, uh, bones of little children, sometimes, sometimes adults, sometimes slaves and so forth, buried at the foundation stone of a new bridge or a new home or a great uh, fortress or a wall. Uh, you know, when they were doing that in Japan, even like uh, not even a few, they stopped doing that like a few hundred years ago. So that was like, you know, they would find a bones of a little child over a bridge that uh, underneath a bridge where they had built a bridge over a raging river to appease the spirits of the river. Uh, so there's like good fortune that the spirits of the river that are connected to the river would not kill those people. So we'll go ahead and kill one of our own to uh, appease those gods. Uh, this is something that is so ubiquitous to human civilization, and uh, the liberty movement needs to really get a reckoning on this to understand why is it that human beings still have this proclivity for uh, sacrificial dealings uh, with their neighbor. And we still see this in, in, in the bureaucratic state in the modern sense, although it's been mutated and deformed because of the impact of Christianity. So that's that's what we're dealing with here is the Bible is moving us away from human sacrifice. That's where you have animal sacrifice and, and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, in the standard, you know, Greek mythology, right? Agamemnon has to sacrifice his daughter, you know, because he screws up in the, you know, the battle sailing to Troy and all that stuff. You know, that's something we most of us had to read in, in high school or college. And so, yeah, that's uh, – and what's also interesting too is – I can remember I've encountered people who were atheists or agnostics and they were just disgusted by the Old Testament story of, you know, God talking to Abraham about sacrificing Isaac. And I think as you're hinting at here, like they don't understand the context, like that wasn't something out of the blue that, you know, a deity would ask you to do that. And then the, the crucial point, of course, was number one, God stops him. He says, no, actually, I don't want you to sacrifice your son. And then also God himself gives his son as a sacrifice, you know, to us. So it's, it sort of just in, inverts it, you know, saying, no, you know, God is, is not asking people to sacrifice their kids. And of course, that's one of the leading things, you know, abominations that the pagan nations do is, you know, burning their children and, you know, to, to their gods. And so that's, I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people misunderstand some of, you know, let's call it barbarism that's featured in the Old Testament and not realizing, as you're saying, this is a way God's pulling his people away from that. Right. And and you see that in that story with Isaac, that that's a move. That's a narrative move that's that's showing that God is not on the side of human sacrifice because you start it starts off with, I think God's asking. See, the modern reader misses kind of the context of that. They think, oh my goodness, oh how rare, how how awfully hard. Uh, such a proposal would be uh, that a deity would ask for someone's firstborn to be killed. No, that was very common. That was the way the world worked. That's how you got a good crop. That's how you got a good fortune. That's how you got a good, you know, blessing with your wives or whatever it is. You know, sacrificing children was the way. That's the that was the fuel for the engine of the world, and uh, and Abraham. That was the context that he understood. And so you see, the narrative at first indicate that the deity wants. Uh, the um, child to be sacrificed, then the narrative changes. Oh, actually, it's an animal that we're going to move towards. So I take that, interpret that to be what is taking place here is the authors are indicating that there's been a transition in what is it, what humans understand God to be for, that he's not, he's not for uh, us killing our children to make him happy. And actually, that's not what he intended at all along. Um, and animals aren't even really what he intended, but that was a way. See, remember, 
human beings because they need sacrifice to get along with each other. They need sacrifice to keep the peace. They need a third party that they can vent their frustrations and anger and resentment on. And so God propitiates the anger of man by introducing these little weaning, these these vehicles like uh, animal sacrifice as a way of appeasing the wrath of mankind. Uh, that's really what's happening. And the Bible gets scapegoated, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, the Bible gets scapegoated by the modern reader because they are basically killing the messenger. The Bible depicts the brutality and the gritty violence of that ancient world, whereas other texts, which are more mythological, hide and conceal the violence. They hide it in the mythologies of the other world. So that's why in modern times, if you go to, you know, like literature departments or whatever, mythology in universities, mythology is treated like a beautiful, sweet little, you know, look at these little symbolic meanings. These are so nice. And they treat the, you know, the biblical text as some kind of vulgar, ugly, you know. But what's happening is that's evidence of how the Bible is critiquing the violent heart of man, right? Because mm-hmm. mythology papers over the violence, and they, they, it's like a cover-up for murder, whereas the Bible is unveiling the overall cover-up that mankind had been engaged in, as Jesus said, since the foundations of the world, you see? Yeah, and it's it's funny because I, I don't know how much— Well, yeah, I think probably when you had me on your show, I don't know if I talked about my own personal odyssey, but, yeah, I spent a period where— I, I was an atheist. I, I called myself a devout atheist, and I thought it was a cop out when you know one of the objections was to say, "Oh, look at how horrible the quote heroes of the Bible are." You know, everybody except Jesus basically is an awful person. Like even King David, look at you know he gets a, gets some guy's wife pregnant and then has the guy killed. I mean, what a what a monster! And then you know the standard Christian response was, "Well, yeah, everybody's fallen, and you know this is this is what human nature's like, and the Bible's being honest about it." And it's it's just funny how, you know, before I used to think that was a cop-out or whatever, but now, of course, I realize that, well, yeah, that is very accurate. And when you see, like, Star Wars or something where Luke Skywalker is a perfect guy and never does anything wrong, you know, no, that that's unrealistic. That's what fiction is. Right. Well, here's the way to, for, for people who are new to the Bible and they want to understand it. Maybe they've heard Jordan Peterson, all this stuff, and they're like, well, I'm not religious. So I used to be raised Christian or whatever. I went to school and now I know, you know, whatever. But if you want to know what the Bible is about from, uh, you know, uh, taking away the specifics of like Jesus and that kind of thing, but just kind of like the, one of the biggest motifs of the entire story from Old Testament, New Testament. Just think of it that history, uh, the Bible is, is kind of like unmasking the secrets of history. It's unveiling the origins of mankind, and it's going to do it in a way that is very subversive and subtle throughout the trajectory of the, of the texts, the, the books in the Bible. So the battle is between collectivism and the person. And Christ represents the individual person, and collectivism is what had always ruled the world uh, and had always transmitted culture until Christ uh, came in, and, and also the prophets before him kind of led, led the way for, you know, paved the path for the respect for the individual person against the collective. Because what, what we see in history is that history is, is written either two ways. It's written by the victors of history. And then when Christ comes in and when the Bible comes in, now we hear a minority report where the victims of history now get to have their voice be heard. And so the Bible is the only text in the ancient world that gives such a radical uh, humanization of 
the victim, of the misfit, of the underdog, of the scapegoat, of the victim who is going to be most likely sacrificed. Uh, all other mythology is written from the winner's crowd. So remember that. When you read mythology, that's the winner's crowd, and they're going to write it in a way so that the people they scapegoated are completely dehumanized as witches and monsters and creepy gods and minotaurs that are half human and half, um, you know, uh, bull or half goat. They're always going to write it in a way that their victims truly admit that they were guilty or that they are truly evil and that they deserved being sacrificed by the greater community for the greater good. That's how mythology is always going to be patterned in that way. Whereas with the Bible, it's the inverse of that, where now the camera of history is taking away from the victor's crowd, the victory crowd, the winner's crowd, and now it's placed into the hands of the victim who's being persecuted by the collective. And when you see the camera view from the victim's perspective, you see a totally different perspective. It looks now we can see how the sausage of history is made. And that's exactly what Christianity has done in history. And that's why we have the liberty movement. That's why we have things like in the Fed. That's why we have respect for the disabled. That's why we have respect for the least of these. And that's why it's sacred to not uh, question or challenge people who are perceived to be victims in the West. That's all because of Christianity and the Jewish tradition that led up to the, the, the Christ event in history. Um, so like I can give you an example, right? Real quick. Look at the story of Job. Job mm-hmm. is one of the oldest texts in the Bible. And it's so radical because it's such a departure from the pagan context around it. Here we have a story where a man is losing everything. He's losing it all. He's losing his, his wealth. He's losing his health. He's losing his money. He's losing his wife. Everybody's turning against him. In the ancient world, if everything was going against you, if the whole world was at your back, it was because you were guilty. The gods were displeased with you, right? They mm-hmm. were You had done something to, to favor their wrath. So what did Job's religious friends tell him? They said, all you got to do is just say, uncle, just say you deserve what's happened to you, that your whole lot in life has been ruined because you are deserving of that. You're a loser. Just admit it and God will bless you. Just say uncle to God. Just say that you're a worm. And Job says, no, I won't because I don't deserve this. And the the God's character in the story of Job comes down and at the end. He says, Job, you've spoken rightly of me, and I'm angry at the guys who told you just to take it and say uncle. So here's this ancient text. Here's a time where they're doing Inca, you know, sacrifices on the other side of the globe. (laughs) They're doing sacrifices in this part of the globe, too, where Job's being written. And here we have this radical, radical, stunningly radical subversion of what God is really like in this ancient text in Job where God sides with the individual against the community that's trying to get him to accept his role as a scapegoat, as a sacrifice, as worthy of being screwed in life. God vindicates him and he condemns the people. And then you have the story of uh, Joseph. That's another ancient story, very, very old story in the Bible. And here you have a story where it's told again from the side of someone who's wrongfully persecuted, right? where Joseph is is condemned by his brothers because they're jealous. The Bible is very clear that they're jealous of him because he's different and he's favored. And then he uh, has the chance to get revenge on them. And what does he do, right? At the end of the story, Joseph 
forgives his brothers, even when he has power in Egypt, he, he does not res- respond with violence. He loves them anyways. So we have this beautiful departure from uh, the winner's perspective to the person who gets screwed. You get the victim's perspective in the story of Joseph. Now contrast that with Oedipus Rex, written uh, you know around the same time perhaps, or at least originally started to be told, and you have this story where uh, this individual he, in order to avert catastrophe, he has to accept, and he takes the blame that yes, I'm guilty of of all the sins that you've condi- that you've accused me of. I am guilty of it, and guess what? That's what caused the plague of Thebes. So I'm going to blot out my eyes and banish myself. And ta-da! You guys can have a good day now, right? That's written from a victor's perspective. That's written from the Stalin, the you know the the Lenin, all you know American mm-hmm. Empire. That's written from the victor's perspective. That's that's their histrionics, their fake history, and you see that right there. But with the Bible, it's completely opposite. This is great. So let me also just re- respond. So yeah, that, I love the you know the angle you're taking here, and I agree with you that certainly. But what's also interesting in both Job and you know, the story of Joseph and his brothers is that, yes, you're exactly right that it it is um, part of clearly what's partly what's going on in the, in the story of Job is that his friends are wrong for looking at his misfortune and saying, you must've done something wrong. And, and also too, I mean, Jesus explicitly says that also, right. When people say, Hey, what, what sins did this person commit or their parents commit so that they're born, you know, they were born blind or whatever the issue was. And he and he corrects them and, and says, no, that's that's not, you know, in this case, what's going on here. Um, but also what's what's funny is like you're reading Job, that's kind of like you're it's a great narrative. And I think I hope I'm not getting this wrong. I think even H.L. Mencken said that the book of Job was like one of the most masterful things ever written. It, it was somebody that you wouldn't have expected to compliment it. So I might be getting wrong. And maybe it's not Mencken, but it's somebody like that right. that you would think would be cynical but could appreciate this is great. And it, how it just builds, like, you're, you know, you keep waiting because it starts out with God, you know, interacting with the devil. And then it's just, you know, focusing on Job and his friends for a while. And you keep waiting for God to come. And I remember I was waiting for God to show up and say to Job something like, OK, well, the reason I let this happen to you is because I'm writing a book. See, <laughs> and I wanted, you know, millions and billions of people to look at this lesson. And so now that you see the big picture, you understand why this is, you know, this is a, you know, a, a good thing or something, you know, and, but he doesn't say that. He just says like, do you know who I am? You know, I created the Leviathan. He just goes through and it, like, reminds Job of who he is. Right. And that's kind of, you know, and you're like, well, yeah. So that that's interesting. And then um, with the Joseph story too, that, he, I mean, it's this great stuff where he, he says, yes, what you guys intended for evil, you know, God used for good. So it, I guess what I'm saying is that it all kind of comes together. And that's the issue with Christianity is it if you look at just any one component of it, it looks kind of nutty and inconsistent or whatever. But if you have it all, the whole thing at once, it all makes sense, even though it transcends, you know, normal human reckoning that there is some weird sense in which God is sovereign and everything happens that he allows to, but yet, you know, people still are the ones doing evil. Right. Christianity is a victim of its own success in the minds of many people who are informed by it in the modern world. Right. They don't, they don't read, they, they, they read the Bible with the vantage point given to them precisely because of Christian revelation and history. (laughs) So they don't see 
okay, well, why don't you look at history from the perspective, well, if try to look from the perspective of the pagan perspective, let's go back and let's see what Christianity is pulling us out of and where it's pushing us towards, right? So they, they don't, they read from, oh, how dare the Bible be so violent? Well, how did you get that sensitivity to violence, sir? It certainly wasn't mm-hmm. from Oedipus Rex. <laughs> You know, it certainly wasn't from the, uh, you know, all these other traditions that we were brought out of because of Christian revelation. The sensitivity to violence is precisely an indication of how much Christianity has its hooks in you. You know, uh, the sensitivity to, well, what about those people? What about the people who were killed in this war and that war? That's because you're so Christian. You don't realize it. (laughs) You you Mm -hmm. know, these people think that they got their sensitivity for victims. Just It just popped out of the ether. And it's such a stupid mythology because it has no basis in reality. You know, the modern myth that we've created for ourselves allows us to continue using violence. You see, it doesn't allow us to have a true repentance as Christianity brings for us. If you have a true repentance with Christianity, you're going to reject the illusion of your desires being some kind of self-autonomous thing that has bubbled up in your heart. And that's going to allow you to see the folly of chasing after all the sins of the flesh as an individual. You know, covetousness and envy and sloth and all the things that manifest from that adultery and all those things. And then, all, and, and, and then also, if you have a true repentance with Christianity, it will it will affect society because you'll understand how you need to renounce your renounce your right to sacrifice as a means of of dealing with your neighbor. And when you do that, it transforms the whole framework of what, you know, society can be. Technology is possible because of Christianity's influence on society. Technology in terms of being able to innovate and create without relying on sacrifice, that is such a blessing given to us because of Christianity's influence on the West. And there's a lot to unpack there. I know I'm saying mm-hmm. a lot of things here that, so you can stop me any point. Well, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Let me, because when you're talking about, well, gee, the, your very sensitivity to violence and your awareness of, you know, the rights of individuals and, hey, that's not fair. And that, and so certain things in, you know, Old Testament narratives, you know, they're, I mean, let's just be frank, like God telling Joshua to go in and to slaughter everybody. I mean, that, that kind of, that's a little bit puff, you know, right. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with that. And I don't know whether to say, you know, so, so there's things like that, but as you're saying, the the very, you know, reason you have this moral framework, it, it is because you're coming out of this tradition that obviously Christianity um, inspired. And so that reminds me that I know there's a line of argument. Maybe this is what you're getting at. It was where people are saying that, you know, this, this alleged, a dispute between science and religion is nonsense. Like the whole enterprise, I mean, for one thing, plenty of our most revered scientists going back in time were devout believers, but also just the idea that you would think the universe is is rational and that, you know, matter is going to be uh, behave according to rules that make sense and that we can discover with our minds. Or, you know, and C.S. Lewis has a famous argument too, where he says, if you believed in you know, sort of atheistic Darwinian uh, stories about the evolution of of human life, you have no reason to trust your reason, right? right? That That's just something that, oh yeah, that, you know, this framework that you developed allowed you to reproduce more and maybe it was good in certain, but it, in other words, kind of like your eyesight could lead you to optical illusions just because of, you know, historical happenstance or whatever, you know, things that were optimized and growing up in the savannah, but, you know, in certain areas, it makes you think you see an oasis or something when it's not there, 
Likewise, just because certain logical, like the law of non-contradiction sounds pretty airtight to you and me, but gee, how do we know? You know, right. would, isn't this what it would feel like if our mind or our brains developed in a way that that yielded more progeny? Um, so I, I don't know, is, is that partly where you're getting that, uh, this, the notion of science and progress, which then, you know, the Enlightenment, whatever, was ultimately used to sort of disparage Christianity as a bunch of silly myths from goat herders. And now we're enlightened and we're scientific and rational that that very notion and those, those ideals were part of the product of what we might call Judeo-Christian ethics. Right. Yeah. So so the Middle Ages get a bad rap, but the Renaissance was good and then the Reformation was good. Then you have the – these are all points on a trajectory that Christianity has afforded us. And it, ta- it starts in it, – you know, progress in history happens and starts and fits, and it's not a perfect little trajectory line up. But the notion that there is a linear view of history, which is something that's so often kind of taken for granted by modernists, you know, progressives and that kind of tradition, that idea of a linear trajectory that history can get better, that we can make the world better, is rooted in a Christian uh, perspective. Because in the ancient world, prior to Christianity, you had a kind of circular perspective. There was a seasonal cycle, and there was life, and there was death, and it was all mediated by sacrifice um, to appease God and to and to bless your your future. And it was kind of like a closed circle of wash, rinse, and repeat. Uh, there wasn't a a view that history could ever get better, right? And so you had this. The, the best you could do is maybe recapture a glimmer of the golden age, which is where you get the idea of the golden age in ancient mythology. Um, so that's what's so radical about Jesus' first miracle in the, uh, the wedding of Cana, where, uh, he brings out the best wine at the end, right? And that mm-hmm. was a trage- That was a, there's a, that, the meaning of that story is so profound. You miss it. Uh, people will miss it if they're not careful. Um, what he's doing is he's saying the best is yet to come. So at the in the ancient world, you you know you gave out your your cheap two dollar Manischewitz wine at the end of your party. You know when you got everybody everybody's loosed up, you get out that garbage wine and you kind of send them or that boxed wine that you had. You know from Walmart, you bring that out and you get everybody <laughs> a last cup and everybody gets out the door stumbling and fumbling. Um, but but with what Jesus does is he takes the best wine, right? I mean from the water they pick up the water and it tastes as the best. And what this means is at the end of the wedding. At the, which the wedding is a microcosm of history. At the end of the wedding, it's even better than when it started, right? So it's the idea that we're not closed in this kind of e- eternal return, uh, this eternal return of the same pattern and cycle of, of dying and rising, uh, of being stuck in this infinity loop of, of kind of just trying to capture a glimmer of the golden age where we came from. No, we're going to go better than the Garden of Eden. We're going to go, the best is yet to come. And that's why the Bible begins in a garden, it ends in a city. And so that idea of a, of a, of a linear perspective, that we can make the world better, that we can improve the world beyond what our forefathers did for us, that's totally given to us because of Christian understanding. Um, so when you get into this, this period of recent history where we're starting to invent things and, and learn how to do pathogens and everything, the question you have to ask first before we got to the point where we could learn, um, oh, maybe there's a maybe there's a pathogen that's causing the plague. The first thing you had to learn was, well, what would stop us from burning witches to, to even stop and consider there could be another thing? You see, most people, you know, really don't understand the power of groupthink. 
in their mm -hmm. own lives, and they don't understand the power of groupthink in shaping what history was all about. When you were in that context, even in with the witch burnings and things like that, you know, these people really believed that uh, their plagues or their famines or whatever, death of the children, was really truly caused by uh, maybe the witch or somebody that was perceived to be a, a sorceress or something. So at what point, what has to happen culturally? Think about this, okay? Because humans, I want people to think about this. What would be the fertile ground in a culture that would start to undermine the practice of looking for a monster or a witch or someone to blame for a disease? That has to come first before the invention. There has to be a cultural context that's kind of moving things slowly along that would allow people to say, you know what? We've been burning this witch. I don't know if that's actually what we should do. I kind of have a little bit of a conscience for this person. I don't know. I'm kind of starting to see this person in a more like myself kind of, you know. Where would you have heard that story, you know, as a society? Love your neighbor mm -hmm. as yourself. Forgive your enemy. Love your enemies. You know, the rain, the, the God gives the rain to the just and the unjust. You know, where do you get, you know, these ideas from? Maybe it's from stories like do not resist evil with violence. You know, maybe it's, you know, the Good Samaritan. Maybe it's these stories that are shaping the art and the aesthetic and the ethic that's coming into the society that starts to undermine the logic of violent sacrifice to create meaning and order in life. And so once once you start to lose the uh, cathartic effect of, of burning a witch, you start to look around and say, oh, you know, maybe maybe it's that bug that we found, that little weird green stuff growing on, on someone's, uh, you know, corpse or something. Maybe that was what was causing the plague or something. And then you start, well, how can we look at that closer, right? So all that innovation comes in the context of Christian ethics and aesthetic undermining the logic of violence. Well, here, let me put it in. Obviously, I'm doing this just to draw the most out of you and, and cater to our some of our listeners who might not be nodding their heads in agreement on this. So certainly, I can remember back when I was an atheist, I know exactly what I would say to you. I would say, are you kidding me? You're pointing to the, you know, Salem witch trials as evidence of the superiority of, you know, a Christian mindset. Those people were quite religious compared to today. The reason they stop burning witches and we, we don't do that anymore is because we have modern science and we know <laughs> that witchcraft is silly or, uh, you know, th when it comes to religious wars, you know, th those things, the reason people do that is because, you know, they believe in an afterlife erroneously because we all know it all ends when you're dead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what makes them do things that make no sense. You know, things they engage in incredible material sacrifice because they think they're going to be rewarded in the afterlife because they listen to these silly stories that have been passed down by their parents. And so, you know, it's precisely the belief in these outdated systems that are anti-scientific. I mean, look at the persecution of, of men of science by the church. So obviously I'm, I'm compiling a bunch of stuff, but just if somebody comes at you with that sort of response, you know, how, what would you, how would you respond to that? Well, you know, you think about it this way. First of all, they have a, I think they have a faulty understanding of what Christianity is. They have a modernist approach, which is like an ideology. Okay, well, you're, you're a Christian if you think X, Y, and Z. Well, that's not what I understand the, the definition of Christianity to be. I see a Christian as someone who's imitating the person of Jesus Christ, imitating their, his thoughts, his actions, his character, 
his fruit of the spirit, his nature, his everything, his dealing with human beings, his dealing with his neighbors, his dealing with everything. So the more you imitate him, the more you become Christian. It's a process. Like uh, Maya Angelou said, when someone tells her that they're a Christian, she says, already, you know, it's a becoming, right? It's a process of becoming Christian. Hmm. Um, now, uh, when in regards to the witch trials and everything, the process of Christian revelation is not something that is an ideological thing that, again, stamps onto your mind and now you're changed as soon as Jesus came out of the grave or someone heard about it. It's a process because human history has been informed by the pagan sacred and the idea of the logic of sacrificial violence. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, humans have done this. It's deeply rooted in the way we treat each other. And so when Christianity comes in there, it's a process. It's a undermining that's a break, but humans are slow to learn. They're slow to repent. And that includes uh, people who call themselves Christian. So what the, what the atheist who's so confident that they think, well, because... The guys ostensibly say they're Christian. Therefore, Christianity certainly couldn't have saved us from the witch trials, right? Well, they don't understand. What they need to understand is why is the witch trial so so clearly depicted in a realistic sense compared to, say, the stoning that Apollonius of Tyana uh, indicated he what he was involved with. Apollonius of Tyana, he you know was in the early part of the first century, like basically the you know first. Uh, he, you know, people argue about when he lived and died, but he was not too long after Jesus himself was around. And Apollonius is often, uh, you know, considered kind of like a messianic figure in the pagan Greek culture of his time. Uh, there's parallels that have been made about Christ, but he's been compared with Christ as a kind of messianic type figure in that pagan context. But what's, what's interesting about Apollonius is that when he is, uh, there's a story where he does a miracle, uh, where he engages a community, uh, a, a group of people come along, and he, because he's a miracle worker, he's a great man, he convinces the collective that uh, he, he's, he's looking at a beggar, and he, conv- he convinces the collective through the power of groupthink persuasion that that beggar that is walking around blind in the city square near the the statue of Hercules, that beggar is walking around blind. That's actually a demon. He is possessed. And it's not until the uh, beggar makes eye contact with the crowd that the narrative that's being written in favor of Apollonius, of his miracle, the narrative indicates that when his eyes looked at the crowd, they shot with hellfire out of their eyes, out of his eyes. And it's immediately then that the crowd starts to stone the beggar. And when they throw tons and tons of rocks on the beggar's body, they go and look, and underneath the rebel, underneath the rubble of rocks, there's a howling, there's a hell dog demon that's sitting there like where the human body was. Now it's been transformed into a, a hell dog, a hound dog. What are those things called? Those hell. Anyways, he's turned into a, a hell dog in the narrative by the end of the story. So I guess what my question for the atheist is, what was the effect? Why did Apollonius's story, where it's written in still kind of mythological framing, okay? Why is that so mythologized and so abstracted where this beggar, has, he looks into the crowd's eyes and the narrative says his eyes were bursting with hellfire. And then they threw rocks on him. 
And before you know it, he was a dog. He was a hell dog, a hellhound. That's it. What is going on in that story that it's so, it's like, it's like one step realistic, one step mythologized. It's got one foot into the, a more modern uh, historical narrative format. And one foot is in the old kind of mythological demons and gods and boogeyman creatures popping up left and right. So what happens so that by the time we get to the witch trials, things are written in a much, much more, uh, you know, more realistic account. This, there's a sickness. It's this lady. It's a witch. We try it. We kill her. It's more, it's more, it's more gritty, realistic. There's not this kind of mythologizing that you see in the Apollonius text. What I would suggest is that it's the, it's the context of Christianity. Christianity is undermining the way in which texts are even recorded so that they become more realistic and honest about the violence that's being engaged by the people who are engaging the violence. Yes, the people who write the stories and the, and the accounts, they're still going to justify their violence. They're still going to write that their witches truly said they were guilty because that's what they do to assuage their guilt and to assuage and justify their violence. But ultimately, What's happening in the in the trajectory of Western civilization, looking at, say, Apollonius's uh, stoning of the beggar in the first century, all the way into 1600s and so forth, where they're burning witches, what's happening is the texts are becoming much more honest in the account of what's happening. No longer, because see, if we go back, here's to, here's to put the context in more clearly, if we go back a thousand years before Apollonius, you don't even have any glimmer of realism. There's no beggar turns into hellhound. It's just a hellhound demon with tentacles, right? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's and it's just and, and it's everything's more cartoonized. Everything's more uh, fantasy or feeling. It's more uh, absurd to the modern perspective. It's more symbolic because the violence had been papered over much much more effectively. By the time Apollonius comes around. The context where he's at, where that uh, uh, lynching had happened, where the killing of the beggar happened, that was in Ephesus. There had been several decades in which the F- Ephesians, were, right, the, the the Ephesian Christians had already been impacted by the revelation of Christ, that God stands on the side of victims, that God stands on the sides of the little guy, of the misfit, of the beggar, and that God is against sacrifice of anyone. He's against the use of violence against people. And so that had already affected Apollonius's context so that we already get a half modern text, half ancient mythologized text. It's almost like a, think of it like, you know, how the Darwinian uh, trajectory has um, that missing link species. That's kind of like the, that's the missing hinge between two different worlds, right? Mm -hmm. That Apollonius text gives us a clue of what the effect of Christianity was already doing just a few decades into the first century, where there's this story of a beggar, but it's got some modernist indications that it's a real person, that it's just a, and it's even in the text of Apollonius's killing of the beggar, there's an indication that the crowd kind of hesitated in killing the beggar at first, that Apollonius had to kind of goad him into it. He had to kind of get him stirred up. So there's already kind of an apprehension and kind of a resistance towards the idea of just killing uh, a a vulnerable, weak person to appease the problems of the community of Ephesus. And it's precisely because of the infection of Christianity that had already started working for a few decades already that is allowing that 
to even begin to take place, where there's resistance to sacrifice. But but by the time we get into the 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 witch accounts in 1600s, it's even more realistic. So that the so that the modern reader can read those texts, and we know not to trust the author, and we know how to look at the author's cover-ups much much more clearly. Whereas when we go back thousands of years into ancient mythology. We don't even see that violence is still taking place. We don't even see that there's a witch hunt behind the story of Hercules, that there's a witch hunt and a murder and a sacrifice of an innocent one behind the stories of Marduk, right? We don't even see it because it's so mythologized, it's so cartoonized, it's so uh, symbologized, so to speak, that you can't even see the actual murder that's being covered up. Does that make Mm -hmm. any sense? That was kind of a big picture, but I hope that... Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that. And it's with a lot of this stuff, it's tricky because it's each perspective can sort of tell a narrative that's consistent with the facts. For example, um, you know, I'm here at Texas Tech and we have Deirdre McClowski's visiting, presenting a paper on, you know, why is it that what she's calling the great enrichment happened when it did? And there's different theories economists have offered as to why was it there's this um, just un- incredible explosion in per capita income that happened, you know, depending the 1700s, 1800s, around that period. And, uh, you know, and, w- and one thing that is not covered, I'm going to bring it up during the seminar, is that, you know, is, is it just a coincidence that it's where Christianity really took took root, that where, where we had this, you know? And so it's, um, and of course, like I say, I remember when I was an atheist, I would have said, well, no, it's, it's clearly, you know, the church persecuted people and that's not where human liberty came from. And the enlightenment was a reaction to it. But it is interesting that, well, how come, you know, all these, re- these other things didn't sprout elsewhere. Why was it just in the area where, for whatever reason, um, it seemed like Christianity t- took hold the most. Um, l- why don't we circle back to something you said, uh, a provocative claim that, you were saying like the modern state engages in ritualistic human sacrifice. Is that, is that the, is that the claim? Yeah. It's a vestige of, of ritual human sacrifice. Okay. Yeah. But uh, about, I think just to go back to that point you were saying about the, uh, what led to the explosion of knowledge and like the enlightenment and stuff, I think the Gutenberg press was a big thing because, because up until that point, the average person in the family did not have the engagement with the text of the Bible, right? So they had it mm-hmm. mediated to them through their um, religious authorities and oftentimes in a tongue they couldn't understand. And so the idea that they could finally engage this radical nuclear power text that's undermining all power structures and violence in society in a very, very radically subversive way. The fact – they don't have to know that. You know, I'm not – people have to be very – they have to be clear about what they're – asking of people, you know, when they're making, you know, I'm not saying that when they read it, they understood, oh, that means government is not acceptable and things like that, right? I'm not saying that. It's an unconscious effect. That's how all mm-hmm. art works, right? You read the story. Mm-hmm. You don't know what it's doing to you. It's got its hooks in you. It's changing your appetites. It's changing your passions and what your what your heart and conscience are going to be pricked about, right? And that's what the Bible does to these people. Once the Gutenberg press comes, it's like, it's like allowing everybody to have a little energy nuclear fusion power reactor in their own uh, backyard. It's like it gives them so much more autonomy and power to think for themselves, which is the fertile ground you need to be able to have a scientific revolution to be able to explore alternatives to the sacrifice. So how does that connect to the modern state? Well, you know, just real, real quickly, if I just jump in there. Yeah, it's 
one thing I've I've observed is you know the, in terms of the the Christian worldview, it's interesting. You've got this omnipotent being that created the whole, you know the heavens and the earth and <laughs> is omnipotent, omniscient, and so forth. And so, what is his plan for saving everybody? It, it involves writing a book. Right. And he's going to use a book basically. <laughs> so, and that's, I mean, I just, that blows my mind. You know what I mean? Like it, it's the, the opposite of what you, and of course, you know, having uh, shepherds and, you know, people of humble means come somebody who was born in the manger, you know, that stuff, I think, but also I, I don't think people remark enough on the fact that, you know, Christianity conquers the world in a sense, of course, nonviolently, but you know, through the propagation of a book. And that, that's, that's such a, um, you know, a revolutionary approach. Yeah, and that book, you know, its stories are what undermine everything about what people use to maintain their power and exploitation of the of those who they have, uh, you know, um, leverage over in society. So, like, look at that story with the um, the the birth narrative of Jesus. I, I talked about that at Christmas time in a recent uh, podcast. Where here we have a story where uh, the hero is. Uh, with with Mary, she's a, a woman who would be, by all standards of her time, considered a flagrant outcast, right? Because it looks, by all standard, by all perception of the community, that she is an adulterous woman, that she has had mm-hmm. sex with her husband before they have their marriage. And so, the Bible, you know, Christian evangelicals are often quick to say, "Oh, the Bible is all about avoiding the appearances of evil. But if that's the case, why did God choose a birth narrative for him to come into in which he flagrantly embraced the appearances of evil for his his, his own parents? I mean, he created the context in which, by all standards, it looked very evil from anybody's perspective if you weren't, you know, if you were living in there. You'd say oh, Mary's Mary's just covering up for some really sinful wickedness or whatever. You know, she's, a, she's an outcast. She has no place in good society. And yet that's what God chooses to come into the story of history through. So it gives you an indication of how radically subversive everything God's going to do once he mm-hmm. once he comes into history directly as a human is going to do. What that what's that going to look like? Yeah. So another quick example on that is everybody knows the story of the good Samaritan or at least they know that catchphrase, but I think you know, until until you know more about the you don't realize that no the Samaritans, you know, were despised by the Jewish people. And so that's that was a particularly, you know, strong way of Jesus zinging his listeners to, you know, to really shake them and say, no, the way you're looking at the world is not right. Right. That's like going into like a, a very progressive church and saying, you know, the good Trump supporter, right? Or, 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 <laughs> yeah. or my neighbor go, is the Trump supporter. Yeah. Who yeah comes or out or going me, into yeah. Southern Baptist Church in the middle of 2004 when the Iraq war was kicking off hot, you know, election and saying the good Muslim, right? <laughs> I mean, you just... That, that in the South, that was not a thing you talked about back then when it was all about, uh, you know, go destroy the Muslims or whatever. But that's how subversive that would be in the context. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. Because because the Samaritans were basically denying the very heart of the religious claim that the Jewish people were making, which is that God is God. We know where God is and he's in our temple. Right. That's ground zero for the sake for, mm-hmm. for sacredness. That's that's ground zero for the existence of the universe is in our temple. And the Samaritans are saying, no, actually, he's on this mountain. Are you telling me there's no one home in my temple? Yeah, I'm telling you that. That's very radical. That's like saying Jesus isn't God for a Muslim to say that today, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to totally deny the very presence of God in the person that you think God dwells in. Or in this case, it was a place, right? Right, right. And, and Jesus says, no, we're coming into a time where we're all going to worship in spirit and truth. 
which is exactly what's happening. So as the world becomes more Christianized, we are becoming more and more haunted by the presence of everything Jesus told us would happen in history. And we're, and we don't, we don't, we're so, as, as modernists, we're so, again, self-deluded by our own mythology that justifies our own violence and our own uh, self-worship that we don't realize how Christian we really are in terms of we're playing in a sandbox fully developed by Jesus. And that is not a religious claim. I try to approach, when I talk, I am a Christian by religion, but when I talk about Christianity in this context, I'm talking about it from an anthropological standpoint. I'm not making any claims about about God's existence or any of that. I'm just saying, if you look at history, we are totally in Christianity's sandbox. And that's why it's so important to have this Christian anthropological perspective informing how to deal with the state, how to understand the state, and how to understand the culture that gave us the state that we have. Yes, and, we're, and I'm making notes here. I want to come back to that, but let's not leave people hanging. So yes, just what, what are your thoughts and just elaborate on your claim that the state, among its other attributes, you could, you perceive it as like this vestigial that uh, is throwback its main to human attribute. sacrifice. Okay, my, you're, you're saying it's my, a main attribute. That is okay. its heart and core is what it is. That's actually exactly what it is. The heart of the state is a religious mechanism. It's a religious entity that human cultures have brought along with us through thousands and thousands of years of human uh, civilizational evolution and cultural evolution. It's a vestige of human ritual sacrifice. It's a vestige, it's a vestige of rituals, taboos, and traditions that crop up around ritual human sacrifice. But ultimately, it is a vestige of that enterprise itself, and that is the very core of why it is so um, why it's so perniciously in the hearts of human beings, why the state, you know, because a lot of libertarians and people, people, you know, they don't understand what they're dealing with, with the state. They think if I can just change their people's minds and make better arguments that people in mass will one day just think their way out of the state. But that's not understanding the true nature of mankind. You're not understanding anthropology. You're start- let, let me, yeah, let me stop you for a second. And because I do want to, the the implications of your perspective on let's say evangelism or libertarian evangelism whatever but let me just make sure i understand your your claim so i think a more standard libertarian view would be and when i say this folks i mean like the anarcho capitalist one i don't mean like a minarchist perspective would say oh the, yeah the state is this illegitimate institution that uses violence and coercive means to achieve its ends but it, if I'm understanding you, you're saying, no, it's not merely that the state is illegitimate because it occasionally uses means that are immoral. You're saying the very end of what it's going for. In other words, like with humans sacrifice, it would be weird to say, oh, yeah, we we sacri- you know, we burned all these kids on the altar. And it was an, an unfortunate offshoot of that, that some kids had to die. Like, it's kind of like, no, that's re- tied into the very essence of what it means to engage in a, you know, a human sacrifice. The, the death is like part and parcel. Of that. That's not some trivial detail that gets carried along, unfortunately. Right. So is, is that, am I coming right. in on what your point is? Right. So humans, human societies, they need to find a way. Let's go back, I'll go into ancient human species, early tribal, archaic man. In order to be able to deal, human beings have this really uh, powerful ability to imitate each other. And this imitation can be positive and it can be negative. When it gets negative, 
when you get, you know, if I reach out and try to shake your hand and you pull back and then I automatically am going to indicate to you through body language or verbs or words, something to indicate that I understood what you did to me and it was rude and I'm going to kind of mirror it back. If it escalates further, you call me a name, I call you a name, you brush up against me, I push you back. Now it's just going to escalate into violence. And that's what happens in ancient society is when you have scarce resources, when you have, and it's not just scarce resources, but scarce resources oftentimes, uh, you know, lack of food, lack of shelter, lack of available mates, uh, disease, certain things like that that put pressures on an on a ancient community of people, there is going to be a a opening for negative imitation loops to build up in humankind. And that's what's going to happen is uh, in animal kingdom, you have a dominant submission mechanism that typically typically keeps genocide from happening. Have you ever heard of a human, of an animal species that just like intentionally created genocide? No. Like, well, like a wolf, right? You have an alpha wolf and a, and a rival wolf comes to battle for uh, the superior status. If the wolf loses, right, he bears his neck, he opens his neck to show it to the alpha, and the alpha usually doesn't take the final strike, right? It's a submission mechanism that says, enough, we've, we've mediated this problem through dominance and submission, we're going to stop here. Humans, we're not so lucky. We, if you kill my cousin, I kill your family, then you come back and kill my whole village. And that's what the Bible talks about, by the way, you know, with the... Uh, What's that guy, uh, Lamech, the guy that he wants to kill like 70 people in revenge because somebody killed his guy, you know? So that's showing the, the, the insane escalation of violence that human beings will go into if left unchecked because human beings are master imitators. That's what set us apart from, human, from, from animals. Animals do not imitate to the same precise degree that we do. We are very contagiously imitating. There's evidence that Within the first eight seconds after birth, the little babies are imitating the tongues of uh, they're they're sticking their tongue out and doing certain little micro movements to indicate they're imitating the faces of of their um, of their parents. So we're master imitators. We're like little magnets, and we're just attracting. We're, so a little child is like a little moon orbiting around a, a, an adult figure, or and it's just absorbing everything about the you know the the the, the adult that they're around. On an unconscious level, you know, imitating not just the way they talk, but they're also their desires or what they perceive their desires to be. And so imitation is the core of, of how human beings uh, create culture. But when it goes awry into a negative feedback loop of, of aggression, it can cause an extinction of society if it's left unchecked. So ancient human beings, they found a way to mediate that by they kind of stumbled onto it by finding a way to sacrifice a scapegoat or to, to find a misfit that they could channel a third party. They could channel their aggression onto a third party that they could resolve their aggression and have catharsis, that feeling of relief that, okay, we made it. We're good. Bada bing, bada boom. Aren't we glad that we're all buddies again, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the feeling you get every time you go to a movie and you see the bad guy get killed. That's the, that's that vestige of catharsis, that that, that feeling yeah. that you came in as a member of your community, you sat in that cave in the theater, you watched this um, crisis happen. This crisis is representation of the communal crisis that ancient humans had, and then it's resolved by the expunging of a of a scapegoat like Darth Vader or Scar from Lion King or whatever it is. 
those villains are the scapegoats. Those are they're they're villainized completely because their role is written by the winning crowd that won that dispute. And so that's how ancient humans dealt with their problems. They would scapegoat and sacrifice the the sometimes it would be the uh, handicapped person, right? That, by the way, that's why gods later on gods are often depicted with uh, uh, limping legs or disfigurement, things like that. Because ironically, the the gods were themselves victims of sacrifice, of violence against themselves as as uh, scapegoats. And the re- the reason why they become gods is because who else but a god could create such a transcendent peace and catharsis among people who were at one point warring against each other, then they channel their directed anger towards a, a common enemy. They kill that person, or in, and a lot of times they, they cannibalize the person, they eat the person, and that eating, that devouring of that person, eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood creates a oneness that is so ecstatic and so comforting that that the community is not going to collapse into a spiral of chaos. It's going to, it, we're all resolved our problems because we, we all agreed in a group think hypnosis kind of state. We all agreed that this guy was the bad guy. This guy put a spell on us and caused us all to hate each other and try to kill each other. But now that we've destroyed this person, kicked him out of the camp or eaten him as ancient humans have all done. Now we feel relief. And so only he must've been a deity that's what the ancient humans would think. They would say he must have been a deity. He must have been something extraordinary beyond just a human. He must have been a, uh, uh, maybe a witch or an ancestral spirit or something something very extraordinary because he brought us all together when we were at the brink of killing each other completely. And so that becomes, as you tell that story of, as human societies continue to go on, the things that would bring people to blows again, right, would people would say, well, how did we mediate the last catastrophe when there was a famine, when resources were low, or when there was no rain for many for a long time, or there was a bug that killed out a lot of people? How did we deal with it last time? Well, our ancient forefathers, they said that they did this. And so they kind of performed the same action again, and eventually through oral tradition, it becomes a myth. Well, it becomes, well, there was a deity that came and visited us, and it walked with the limp, and we killed it. And when we killed it and ate its flesh, its flesh had magic powers and made us all love each other again. So every now and then, whenever there's a famine, just remember, look for the signs of that deity. And sometimes you have to feed it one of you. You have to feed it one of your, you know, slaves or one of your poor people or something, or maybe the old king who's been on the throne too long. Throw him a little piece of meat, you know, and that and that deity will come and bring us rain again, right? And that's how they understood the world. The world was steeped in magic in ancient times, and that's how they understood the world was through that cause and effect of sacrifice. That it united people in such a miraculous way that it was associated with a lot of good physical events like rain coming and things like that, you know, that they thought that was a cause and effect with the natural world. Hey, everybody, let's take a break from my interview with David Gronowski to talk about my own contributions to the Politically Incorrect Guide series. So David mentioned that one of the things that was his introduction in this strange new world of Austro-Libertarian thinking was Tom Woods's book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. So for those who don't know the backstory, Tom wrote the first in that series it was put out by Regnery, and it was a bestseller. And then Regnery started to say, oh, okay, that's good. And so they started coming up with other titles for the Politically Incorrect Guide series, and they wanted to do one on capitalism. 
And I don't think I'm divulging any trade secrets by saying that they asked Tom and he said that they should tell me, have me do it. Now, I, I don't know if they asked him to do the book or if they just said, hey, can you give us an idea of somebody to do it? And he recommended me and the rest is history. So I did the Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. If you haven't read that, it's one of my punchier books. So I was, I was a younger man, perhaps more foolhardy, angrier, perhaps more pugnacious. I was kind of like Tom Woods back then. In any event, uh, a lot of people have come up to me at conferences or what have you and said, you know, this book right here is what made me a libertarian. Or this really taught me free market economics. So if you haven't ever seen it, you might want to check it out. I then had another book in the series. I believe I might be the only one that has two politically incorrect guidebooks. I could be wrong about that. Uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal. As the title suggests, this is one I wrote. It was right when Obama won the election and people were making comparisons of George W. Bush to Herbert Hoover and Obama to FDR. And the people making those comparisons were saying it complimentary to Barack Obama. And I was saying, yeah, he is like that. And it's not a good thing. And of course, as you can imagine, I point out in the book and use arguments and evidence to show that the Great Depression was not the fault of the free market but in fact was the, the depression itself, the boom bust, the crash of 29 was due to the Fed's inflationary uh, monetary policies in the 20s, which blew up a giant asset bubble. And then contrary to what you may have learned, Herbert Hoover actually implemented a New Deal light, had the most expansive interventionist peacetime actions of any president up to that point in U.S. history. And then FDR, of course, just raised the ante. And so uh, a lot of good stuff in that book as well. If you Let me say this. If you've just read Murray Rothbard's America's Great Depression, the problem with that is it ends with the Hoover administration. He doesn't really go into the New Deal. And so my book, it's not as in-depth, obviously, as Murray's. It's more of a light read, but it covers more territory. So to find out more about my own politically incorrect guidebooks and how you can order them, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash pig. So it is interesting, like I said, with with the uh, like the famous witch trials, which you know people are at least American listeners are going to be familiar with it. It it's not merely that oh they had different views about the cause of disease or crop failure than the modern you know agnostic person would who's more scientifically trained. It's you know in other words, how come they didn't say hey the reason the crops are failing is because of these women over here, and so what we have to do is go get them really nice dresses and rings and then they'll be happy and then the crops will be restored. Right. You know, why is it that the way to solve the problem is to kill them? Right. <laughs> you know that you get what I'm saying? So it's not merely that it's uh what we would say is a faulty understanding of, of cause and effect in the material world that yes, there why does it seem to be that it goes to violence is is what has to be bound up in the solution. Exactly. Well, so let me I mean I think what's staring a lot of people in the face at this point is they're gonna say um David, what are you what are you talking about here? Like, that's you just described Christianity. Like the whole essence of Christianity is that Jesus comes and he's a deity, and we drink his blood and eat his flesh, and that's what gives us salvation. Yeah, so, the, the know, text John says, gnaw on my bones. Like they use the mm -hmm. word gnaw, like you're chewing on that little last piece of steak on that ribeye bone, you know. So 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 how you know how can that be, Mr. Gronowski? Like you're it sounded sure sound like you were critiquing this idea of sacrifice to, uh, you know, cover sin and so forth. And yet, isn't that the essence of Christianity that we, it took an act of, you know, murder and torture 
to save humanity. And I remember, by the way, back in my, again, in my days when I was an atheist, that was one of my things. I said, look, put aside the miracles, you know, walking on water and feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves, all that kind of stuff. But just the essence of it, that God's really mad at us because of something Adam did, which by the way, that's kind of crazy, right? That some, some guy did, I don't even know who he was. That means I'm condemned to burn forever. And the only way we got back on God's in God's good graces was we murdered His Son. Right. Like when you describe it like that, that's kind of weird. And what did so, they clothe that? What did they clothe Jesus in when they were killing him? When they were whipping him and all that? What did they clothe him in? Uh, was when Jesus was on when when Jesus was being persecuted? You were saying about how he was he was being persecuted. What did they mm-hmm. clothe him in? What did they put on him? I mean, I don't. I mean, I know at one point they put the crown of thorns, but are you talking about what he's wearing the whole time? Well, no, he 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 wore a crown of thorns. That's right. And what else did they put on him? I'm not sure. <laughs> a purple robe, like a king. Oh, right? oh, right. Okay, yeah. Why did they do that? I mean, I think in their mind they were just mocking him, like the irony of oh, he thought he was a a king, and so yeah, let's make him a king. But are you saying you were? I'm assuming you're saying there's more to it than that. Well, do do, do you think? Do you think they just came up that randomly, or do you think that there maybe there was a context for why they were treating him like a king? So if you had asked me before giving, you know, before I heard your thoughts a few minutes ago, I would have said, yeah, I guess it's just the irony and they were mocking him because he was supposed to be the king of the Jews. And he was, you know, somewhere claiming he was the Messiah. So ha ha, let's, let's, you know, up the ante and show that we're more powerful. You right. know, Rome's coming in and we can beat your your deities or your kings. But then we see evidence like in Roman society, there's a festival called Saturnalia. Mm-hmm. And what did they do there? They dress a, a person, they selected a guy, a young man, put a robe on him, put a crown on him and paraded him around the city before they murdered him in, in uh, honor of the god Saturn. Uh, Saturn. Mm-hmm. Why did they do that? What, is that? what does that have to do with Jesus being dressed as a king before he's murdered? Is there is there a connection there? I'm sure there is. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know enough about you know ancient cultures. Now I'm just to be asking able to, these questions for yeah. the listener too to right, think about it. Right. What, do you think that just randomly happened, or does there maybe there is a pattern here? <laughs> and I want to know this question too. Why did in nineteen in the nineteen twenty I think it's nineteen twenty eight to look at the date? I just remember reading a story about a a black man in Saint I think it was Saint Louis Missouri nineteen twenties, and uh, for some reason they picked him out. And they, the community, very racially charged, for some reason, they dressed him in a purple robe and put a crown on his, on his um, head, and then they filleted him alive and killed him. Why'd they do that? Why did they dress him up as a king before they tortured him? Why did they parade him around as a king before they tortured him in 1920s America? Do you think they read their Bible that Sunday morning and they were like, oh, I think I'm going to imitate what, you know, I'm in Sunday school today. And I just read a story about how Jesus had a purple robe on his back and he had a crown of crown. And I think I'm going to go find a black person and I'm going to go do that same thing to him because that sounds like a good thing for me to do. Does that sound like what they did? (laughs) Why did they do that? I mean, I'm not sure. I suppose, again, I'm just throwing stuff out here that part of it could just be the impulse to destroy. And so if you're going to destroy something, you might as well make it bigger first before you tear it down. Yeah. I mean, that's that's certainly a good, a good baseline of like what maybe they're trying to do. But why is that happening in the same way is what I'm wanting to know. Why did they why did they do that in, in ancient Aztec society where they would they would take slaves and then they would get them the finest orgies. They would give them the finest foods. They would give them everything their heart desired, fatten them up with all the local delights and then take them up 
and sacrifice them, rip their heart out while it's beating and give it to the gods. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird? Why is that happening all over human civilization? <laughs> is that like the uh, the last meal before they send you to the chair? Well, that sounds. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good illustration. I like that. That's a good vestige of that. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> See, now you're an anthropologist, maybe. Here you go. <laughs> but you're thinking about that. Why is this pattern happening all the time? It's something to think about, isn't it? Like, why why do we have all these stories of these these least of these these misfits these outcasts? being treated and paraded as a king before they're ritually sacrificed. And and you know what's interesting, you know, why is it that another young man that was killed in the southern states, or what was that, was it Emmett Till? I'm not sure. I think it was Emmett Till. When he was killed, they sickly burned him, they burned the body alive, and then they took relics from him. They took they took fingers little from his from his corpse and they were like selling them as relics. And thousands of people gathered. And they took little, like a finger and a thumb and a bone piece and a fragment like that. Why do they do that? I'm, I'm so I'm for sure agreeing with you that yes, this is something that is not unique to the uh, the Christian story, and that this seems to be pervasive. And and yeah, I, I guess I haven't thought of it before. Isn't that weird? But isn't that yeah. weird that like why? I mean, I'm just asking it for myself. I don't have a specific answer exactly. I have an idea, but. Like why well, actually they, too, and now they're yeah, they taking a finger it, as a relic. Like what made that special? It sounds like they're treating him like Saint Peter. Like remember I, how they had the Peter bone and stuff, and people mm, would try to get a bone of James and stuff. And actually, now that you're mentioning it, I do recall reading stories about like U.S. Marines or somebody who were over in Vietnam, and they would like wear a bone or something from some villager they killed around their neck as like a talisman or something. That yeah, that's um, hmm, right? Isn't that weird? You know, and and I think about the. I remember reading the the story about the um, the the people in Indonesia that were butchered. They butchered like a a million different people who were accused of being communists. This was the ethnic Chinese in the 1960s in Indonesia. Now, remember, Indonesia was very, very kind of not so steeped in Christianity on a deep level for a long time, like say the West or something. In the 1960s, they get they get on this tear about. There's communists everywhere, and they start going on these military, paramilitary groups, rounding up these uh, suspected Chinese people, I mean, these suspected communists that were usually ethnic Chinese, and they would torture them and kill them, right? And, and you can watch a movie about this called The Act of Killing. It's a very great movie. It's very hard and heavy, but I recommend everyone watch it. And they and these people who actually committed the killings, they're still alive. They're, like, really old now, and they report— uh, like what they would do when they would kill a victim is they would drink the blood of the victim because they said if we didn't drink the blood, we'd go nuts. We'd go crazy. So we would drink the blood. They literally would drink the blood as a group of their uh, people they would torture and kill. So isn't that weird? You know, I thought, now, Mr. Modernist people listening, I thought that we were all civilized now, right? <laughs> I thought we could all read English and we don't do cannibalism. We don't do drinking blood and all that stuff. I thought we had had the enlightenment and, and everything's just all hunky-dory. Now we just got to get rid of the stupid religious people. Well, why are they people drinking this blood? They're not doing it in a religious way. They believe that uh, this is how they're going to stay sane and how they're going to get powers from the victims that they've killed. Strange, isn't it? I mean, look at this weird – these weird patterns that we're looking at. You got it. a black man in 1920s America dressed in the same way Jesus was before he was lynched. Well, my point is all of this is that, you know, there are there is a cultural structure of scapegoating and violence 
that is the fertile ground by which the state has its power. So if you want now, for those who are like, all right, get to the point. Give me some, give me some applications <laughs> here. Give me some applications. Okay, you want to get rid of the state? Well, you need to talk about the culture that produces the context for the state, which is a culture that believes it's okay to sacrifice, a culture that believes it's okay to parade a, 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 a black person like Jesus and kill him. And that somehow gives them catharsis. That catharsis, that need for catharsis is still the driving seat behind why so many people support the state. They support the state because the state, whenever they put someone like Erwin Schiff in prison because he protested the taxes, that he is a still, he is serving as a kind of form of catharsis, as a vestige of catharsis for the community that feels envious that young, that this, this individual, uh, didn't get to play by the same rules that they had to. And so we have to have the state to mediate our need for vengeance, our anger, our resentments, our envy. All of that is a little fleeting high of catharsis that the state gives us on tap when they produce, you know, uh, this, 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 uh, you know, prison system and a military system that allows us to channel our violence onto third party entities. So if you want to deal with the state, you have to confront your neighbor in the realm of culture as a relationship, as a person. Uh, if you can use your social media, get on a YouTube channel, make a podcast, do videos, do whatever you can and, and engage culture as a storyteller and tell the truth about the many scapegoats and victims of sacrifice that the state uses to get its power. What is Ocasio, what is all of these political people all about? The political Ocasio-Cortez, she's saying she's going to sacrifice the rich and the white or whoever that's a, a racist person, whatever. She's going to sacrifice those people when she has power. That's what she's promising her people. And what does Trump promise? He promises he'll sacrifice, you know, immigrants or he'll sacrifice, um, you know, whatever. The Chinese Chinese, or yeah. yeah. He's going to sacrifice good, them. Yeah. So all politics is a kind of schismatic battle of, of sacrifice. It's about who's going to get the population to be most appeased and cathartically, you know, like, ooh, I can't wait to see that. Sac like, who's going to convince the population that their sacrifices are the most just and warranted? And that's the one that wins the day. And so in order for you to deal with the state, don't worry about facts and figures. Understand that you're dealing with something on a deeper level than the, than the neocortex. You're dealing with the limbic brain. You're dealing with something deeply rooted in human society for thousands of years to the point where 1920s Christian Americans could read their Bible and still stupidly enact the same pagan sacrifice that killed their alleged God themselves. You see, mm -hmm. that's, that's something deeply rooted in us. You're not going to get that change just because, you know, you play, you know, a, a, an argument that's better than the left or whatever. You have to deal with the human heart. And that's what the anthropological approach that I'm using does. We look at what is the real reason why we have laws against drug use. It's to sacrifice people so that we feel a little bit of catharsis knowing that we're in our cozy homes and they're in a prison cage with violent people. That's a catharsis, right? You know, why do we put the raw milk farmer in prison? Because the dairy industry needs that catharsis to know that, you know, they can eliminate and not just the dairy, it's the people that the dairy people convince. The, the, the consumer says, well, oh, it's so nice to know that I'm protected uh, because— can, can, can I push you on that? I actually think it's—I think part of it is 
that's just weird. That's a weird guy over there drinking raw milk. Yeah, let's do something bad to him. Right. To that's what I'm saying. Being it's a weird. misfit. Yeah. It's a misfit. <laughs> right. But I mean, as opposed to, well, this somehow through some convoluted chain of reasoning keeps my kids safe because right. they're drinking homogenized they milk. Post, yeah, that, uh, yeah. Right. That's the official reason. But yeah. Right. You're, but you're right. You, you've, you've said it better than I did. It's, it's, it's just the fact that they're different. If you're different, you're a misfit. Put them in a jail. Scapegoat them. So we don't we don't butcher you alive and take your heart out nowadays. We just slowly roast you in a PTSD cage, you know, and put you in a prison cage with violent people where you'll be numbered among the transgressors, uh, as Christ was as a nonviolent person. So that's what that's what the heart of the state is. It's it's there to um, to pro- to provide a kind of transcendent, little fleeting high of catharsis on the backs of targets that the community can get whipped up. The crowd, the crowd is the nature, you know, the politics is the art of the crowd. And all you have to do is learn how to, you know, surf the power of the crowd as a politician and steer it and kind of, you're kind of in a cajoling situation where you're going to steer their passions into a safety valve. uh, And that's going to be the rich or the poor or the black or the Hispanic, or the migrant, whatever it is, and that's all politics is. Um, The reason why it doesn't unite us all as it used to, because in the Aztec era, the whole community was united as one, and they all agreed that the gods were pleased because they gave them those, you know, sufficient sacrifice. The reason why it doesn't unite us is because of Christ. But that would probably be for another time. (laughs) Well, right, yeah, because we we are running low here, but so uh, I just want to not leave people hanging. Do, do you agree? I'm not saying that this is the way you would um, summarize it yourself from scratch, but is part of what's going on here, would you say that in like what better way could God snap us out of this or show us the futility and the horror of this way of dealing with things than to say, look, at what if I came to you, you know, God myself as a man and did nothing but going around healing people, giving beautiful sermons, teaching you how to live literally, you know, healing you of sickness and then you murder me because of that. Like, doesn't that show you the absolute futility? And then what does God do in response to that? Just again, to make sure we get the point, he doesn't, you know, wipe out half the population as punishment for doing that to him. He forgives us even while he's dying on the cross and that he makes that the key to our salvation. Is is, like, is, is, are you, again, I'm not saying that's necessarily the way you would have described it from scratch, but are you okay? Okay. Yeah, that's very good. Because what 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 when Jesus says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do," he's on the cross, naked, dying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what he's he's making he's making a statement, almost like a scientific statement of fact. Like, in the, people think that's like a hallmark statement. Oh, just forgive them. You know, I'm a nice guy. No, he's telling you he's. It's like a breaking of the fourth wall of the text. If you're reading that text, he's reaching out through the text and slapping you in the face a little bit. Wake up. <laughs> Here you go. Mm-hmm. I'm giving you a clue about what humans do. Here it is. Forgive yeah. them, God. They don't know what they're doing. And we still don't know, although we have more of a reason why we should know, because we have 2,000 years right. of trying to get the understanding of the gospel right as a human species. And yet, yes, the church has got it wrong, but that was what the Bible predicted. The Bible predicted you will read the text and still can't see me. You know, you still can't mm-hmm. see me, Jesus, even though you know the text. Well, that's the fault of the church. But, uh, you know, and, and but that's the fault of any human being who is deeply steeped in uh, many, many, many tens of thousands of years of of pagan logic of sacrificial violence as the way to deal with the world. And so Christ comes into that, and now we have the story of 
a man paraded as a king and then butchered alive for nothing, only to appease the crowd's resentment. The last week they were cheering him. Now they're trying to kill him. Doesn't that sound like every politician and actor and every celebrity you've ever heard of? You know, maybe not literally physically butchered, but a lot of celebrities, they're brought up and then they're crashed down and the, and the public laughs at their, at their demise. Um, and that happens all the time. Uh, so, so, so you see what I mean? Like, uh, but yeah, they, they relish it. Like yeah. you're right. The, the higher they were, that's the more satisfying when they come crashing down. Right. So there's all these scapegoats. Politicians are scapegoats. That's why they're, they're mm. like misdirected. All they do is misdirect all of your energy and resentment towards their personality. And then you're like, okay, well, the problems are that guy, kill him, destroy him, put him in prison. You know, it's, it's, it's Putin. It's, it's Trump. It's Mexican immigrants. It's whatever it is. Just destroy them. Get them out of our life and then we'll be good. And that's all politics is, is all these misdirecting scapegoats that are also, right, if they're politicians, they're also uh, actually doing violent scapegoating to the people who they put in prison or fine or, or, or send off to war for stupid greed and stuff like that. Those are all rituals of sacrifice and that's all – what binds the, the 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 state together? The good news is it's all falling apart. Now that's not really good news because if we if we don't get a reckoning as a society, if we don't repent of our need for violence and really internally repent of our desires, and I'm not talking about a religion. You don't have to get religious here. Repent means change your mind. So if you're an atheist and you want to cling to a little bit of violence or vengeance against the people that you believe are you know ruining your life in the state, you got to get rid of it. Because it's only going to mirror back the same violence that they're subjecting us to in their own offices of power. If we don't get a handle on rejecting sacrificial violence and the and the and, and why we have this need for it, if we don't let go of that, we're in for a world of violent, vicious, nasty times. Okay, because the state is losing its ability. In the ancient world, it united us. It united civilizations very cleanly, very easily, and now. Because of Christ coming into history and revealing that it's garbage, that sacrifice is wrong, that it's unfair to and it's unjust to uh, – well, Caiaphas said it. He said it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. Mm-hmm. He said mm-hmm. that before he killed Jesus or he, he helped execute Jesus. And that is the logic of the state. It is better that Erwin Schiff die in a prison cage of cancer – 300 miles or whatever, 1,000 miles away from his family uh, because he didn't pay or he didn't want to pay taxes or whatever, then the whole nation perish if, God forbid, we didn't have an income tax. It's better that one Syrian child die than the whole nation perish if, God forbid, we don't get to control who's running Syria. It's better that one Yemeni child die of starvation then God forbid we we have to deal with a life in which Saudi Arabia is not owning us like a bunch of puppet masters. You know, it's better that one... Uh, you know, person who wants to, you know, have discriminatory hiring practices against certain races. It's better that he gets stuck. It's better that we throw that man in a cage as if he's violent than the whole nation perish if, God forbid, people are allowed to exercise their bigotry and work out their own salvation with fear and trembling without a gun to their head. That's the logic that Caiaphas reveals about the state when he persecutes Christ. And so that story is being that Christian story of God's vindication of Jesus's innocence as the one persecuted by the many is, is why we have libertarianism. It's why we have free markets. It's why we have respect for the individual, right? It's why we go into a theater today 
And if you even go to a theater where it's like really crowded and it's all packed in a movie theater and all the seats are taken and you'll watch, watch the handicapped seats. No one takes them even when there's plenty of seats open in the handicapped seats and there's obviously not going to be enough handicapped people to fill them all up because the movie's already started. People will walk by those seats and they will treat them with sacred awe. I am not going to sit in there because my culture, they don't realize why it came this way, but my culture is owned by the man who said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In Jesus' day, when he said that, when he said that, when he would go to a theater of his time, if you were disabled or handicapped, you would be lucky if you wouldn't be thrown into the lions for, mm-hmm. for, for, for entertainment. You wouldn't be given the best seat in the house. The best seat in the house would be given to the governor and his religious and his crony friends his crony, you know, violent little senators and stuff. That's where he sat. And now that seat is given to the handicapped. And the reason why it is, is because we have a culture that honors the least of these, even though we're not doing it right. We're still working it out because it's a process. But we are totally owned by Jesus. Whether you believe in him as God or you believe he's just a man, he's the master of history in everybody. If you want to know what's happening, you want to know why political correctness is happening, you want to know why there's this obsession with victims, if you want to know why we're obsessed with, uh, you know, football players having concussions, <laughs> all the sensitivity to violence and sensitivity to victims and marginalized people, you got to study Jesus's life because he's the one that's going to unveil why all this is happening. Well, this is great stuff. Uh, now, is this just for people who want to, and I'm clearly, I'll, I'll have you back as our schedules permit here, because this obviously we could talk for a long time on this stuff, but is this what mimetic theory is about? Because I know that's a phrase that I associate with your podcast or your, with your show. Um, so can you just briefly explain, like, what, what is that? And I don't know if you want to get into, you know, maybe some things we can put in the show notes page for people who want to go watch some videos or get some books on this? Yeah, mimetic theory is an anthropological framework. It's a social science theory that uh, really shows the science of man through the, through the lens of the Bible. And you don't, you, don't, you don't need to have any deity claims or any, you know, spiritual claims. You can use just an anthropological science, secular frame, and you can understand how Christianity shaped history and how it created things like social justice warrior, all this stuff. All these things are, 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 are crops of the fertile ground that is uh, the, the science of man that the Bible has unlocked. It's the key to all knowledge. And uh, Rene Girard is the founder of mimetic theory. Like, you know, you have evolutionary theory, you have all these scholars that are working in different fields developing it, but it was founded by Charles Darwin. So Rene Girard is kind of like the, um, the Darwin of this field of thought. But it has multiple, uh, you know, scholarly channels uh, into psychiatry, into literature, philosophy, um, ethnology, all these different things you can get into um, multiple social science fields to go into. I think there's some physics to it, too, but that's another that's a time for another discussion. But 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 there's a there's a rich body of work to start with in Rene Girard's uh, book. I would recommend like I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Uh, one of his books that I think is really helps encapsulate the totality of his theory. It's not written, you know, it's not like 12 Rules for Life where it's like really kind of, you know, ma- meant for a pop audience. It's more, it's mm-hmm. a little bit more technical. So you're going to have to you're gonna work at it a little bit for if you're new to his kind of way of looking at it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's the biggest uh, kind of red pill you can ask for in terms of making sense of, history and politics and 
Why is it that the state doesn't bind us together? Well, he doesn't tell you, but you'll once you understand the theory, you'll understand how I've applied it because I've taken it into a different realm. I've taken it into political analysis and economics and things like that where other people have not quite touched as much. But that's kind of like my ongoing project is taking the toolkit of mimetic theory and developing it in the realm of, uh, you know, political theory and things like that. All right. Well, that, that's great. Um, so thank you, uh, David, for being with us. So folks, this is David Gornowski. His uh, show is A Neighbor's Choice. We'll put links to that. Um, and remember, David and I are both going to be speaking along with Jeff Deist uh, for a Mises Institute event that's going to be in Orlando on February 16th, 2019. Um, also, I just got confirmation of this while we were recording here that I do have some some free seats available for Bob Murphy Show listeners. So if you want to contact me um, uh, as 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 supplies last week, you can, you can come to that event for free to come hear David and me and Jeff Deist talk about uh, society, culture, the economy from this Austro-Libertarian perspective. And of course, in David's case, is informed specifically by mimetic theory. So David, uh, this was a fascinating conversation and I uh, thank you for, for being here and I hope to have you back soon. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.